Indeed, precious Lord, we are weak and helpless. Indeed, as the psalmist says, you know our frame, Lord. You know that we're but dust. And who are we, Lord? Who are we to come before you? And yet, Lord, in and of ourselves, we are nothing. And yet, Lord, out of your great mercy and love, we can come before you through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, precious Lord, this morning that you would help us by your spirit. Help me, Lord, as I preach your word to preach faithfully and help, Lord, all of us to, to pay attention to your word, to receive it, to store it up in our hearts. And whatever, Lord, you are calling us to do, Lord, may we obey it and walk in it. Oh, precious Lord, be with us this morning, we pray. May we see your love, your love given in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in your giving him for your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 5, starting at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if... When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the perfect word of our God. Well, these verses that we're going to be looking at this morning, verses 6 to 11, contain the central message of salvation, or the gospel, if you like. And it's particularly focusing on the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And understanding the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is essential for your salvation, but also for the hope for every single Christian. And this epistle, this letter to the church in Rome by the Apostle Paul is a glorious exposition of this gospel. So if you like these, these verses and so many verses that you take in Romans or, or passages, they are, they are the gospel in, in summary form, but the whole of the book of Romans is, a, is an exposition of the gospel of God. And what Paul wants his, his hearers at the church at Rome, the readers of this epistle, the hearers as it's read out to them to, his, to understand whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, the gospel's the same. The gospel about how you can be justified or declared righteous in God's sight and made right with him 
by faith alone, in Christ alone. And here in these verses, verses 6 to 11, we see that Christ's death is at the center of this justification, this, this, this reconciliation with God. Why did Jesus give his life? Why did Jesus die on the cross? And there are many misconceptions going around in our culture. Maybe, maybe if you're here for the first time or, or you're not a Christian, maybe you have these mis- misconceptions. Well, a misconception, number one, might be that Jesus dying on the cross was just a good example. It just was something good that he did and, and we're to kind of emulate and, and give ourselves for others. An influence, a moral one on mankind, a symbol of sacrifice. The only problem was, if it's only this, sin's not actually dealt with. Sin's not actually paid for. Or maybe this misconception. Well, God's intention was for Christ to pay for the sins of every single person in the world. The only problem is this. That if Christ paid for every single person's sin on the cross, then why does God still send sinners to hell? Because God can't be unjust, can he? What about this third misconception that that Jesus did have to pay a ransom, but he didn't pay it to God, he he paid it to the devil. That's called the ransom theory of the atonement. He paid, Christ paid the ransom to the devil to buy back his people. The only problem is this, with that theory, is that it doesn't speak about Christ giving a ransom to the devil. It talks about Christ binding and, and, and having bound the devil, having plundered the house of this strong man, as Jesus said, and crushed his head. That's not paying a ransom to the devil. That's defeating him completely and utterly. Rather, it's God's justice which must be satisfied. His justice which must be satisfied. No, we will see here in our verses this morning that Christ actually paid for sin and he paid for the sins of his people. He actually took the wrath of God for his people. He justified them before God and he reconciled them to God. J.C. Ryle says this, We can never attach too much importance to the atoning death of Christ. It is the leading fact in the word of God on which the eyes of our soul ought ever to be fixed. Without the shedding of his blood, there is no remission of sin. It is the cardinal truth on which the whole system of Christianity hinges. This is the master truth of scripture, that Christ died for our sins. Would you ever give your life for anyone? Would you ever give your life for anyone? If so, who would you give your life for? Would it be one person? Would it be your friends, or maybe your close circle of friends, and you, you, know, you pick which ones? And maybe it's your family. Maybe your family rate, rate higher. Who would you give your life for? And what would it achieve? Would it actually affect anything in the end? Would it? That's what we're going to see. Christ gave his life for his people, and he actually brought in salvation and redemption for them. But as we've looked at the context as it's been read out in, 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 in Romans 5, in verse 1, Paul reminds the church that they've been justified through faith and therefore have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in these verses 6 to 11, we're going to see that the death of Christ is at the heart of the, justif- 
justification through faith, and the peace of God that believers have. But if you go down to verse 5, in verse 5, if your eyes have a look there, it says, And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And these verses 6 to 11 outline the love of God in Christ Jesus for his people and the supreme act of God's love in the God giving his son to die for his people. And as we have a look at these verses 6 to 11, we're going to see firstly the need for Christ's death. And we're going to be going a little bit back and forth because there are truths that Paul kind of spreads throughout these verses. He doesn't just go one verse to the next. He kind of spreads these truths throughout. So the need for Christ's death in verses 6, 8, 9, and 10. Don't worry, I'll direct you to them. Next, the motive behind Christ's death in verses 7 and 8. And the end of Christ's death, the result in verses 9 to 11. Well, firstly, the need for Christ's death. Why did Christ have to come? Have a look with me, verse 6 in your Bibles. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Have a look there at that word powerless. It means to be weak. Oh, that word indicates your, your helplessness, helplessness or a disability or sickness. It emphasizes the total inability for sinners to save themselves before God. You are weak and helpless. And even when we are saved, we're still weak and helpless and need God's grace. In Acts 5, verses 15 and 16, I want you to listen out for the word sick, because that's the same word translated here as powerless. Acts 5, it says this, The people even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Did you notice there as I was reading it? The sick, it was mentioned twice, the sick had to be carried out. They couldn't support themselves. And it says they were laid down on cots and mats. That word sick doesn't just mean, oh, I've got a bit of a sniffle. Jesus, can you just heal my runny nose? No, it means they had to be carried out and laid down so that Peter, that his shadow might possibly fall on them and that they be, might be healed. They were helpless an utter inability to heal themselves or even to carry themselves at the very, maybe potential, the hope of healing. That's the word here in our passage, powerless. Powerless. And it's the same way in your salvation. You're powerless without Christ. Your works, they're filthy rags in God's sight. And you, you can't work your way to heaven. Even coming to Christ to be saved. The Spirit has to carry you, just like they had to carry those sick to Peter. Indeed, the Spirit carries you as it were by, and gives you that faith so that you can come to Christ. Because you're powerless. You're helpless. Your works won't save you. You can't save yourself. You can't conjure up enough power. But have a look at the other words in, in verse 6. It says, you see, at just the right time. This enhances the word powerless. 
because it's the precisely the right time because there was no other time. It's not that you're powerless now and, and when you've achieved enough, in a few years you'll be the right time for you. No, it's the right time in God's calendar and it's the right time in your calendar because you're powerless and you're always going to be powerless. It's at just the right time. It was the perfect time because it was God's chosen time and you were desperately in need of Christ. Galatians 4 verses 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that He might redeem those under the law. The fullness of time, it says. The right time. God's time is always the perfect time. So the timing of God sending His own Son was perfect. But not only are we unable to save ourselves, but we damn ourselves at the very same time. Not only can we not get ourselves to heaven, but we damn ourselves at the same time. We're going to have a look at verses 6, 8 and 10, the wickedness of man. Not only the, our inability by nature, but we're going to see our wickedness by nature. Well, for whom did Christ die? Well, verse 6 what does it say? The noun says, Christ died for the ungodly. Let's keep your eyes down to verse 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then verse 10. It says, For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Notice those three words there. Ungodly. Sinners. Enemies. And those words are the nouns used to describe the us and the we of all those verses. What Paul is saying here in Romans is that the us and the we, we were ungodly, we were sinners, we were enemies of God. Past tense, that's who we were. Don't forget it. The words ungodly and sinners highlight the depravity and the wickedness of what we were before Christ, and indeed of all mankind outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're the ones for whom Christ died is the ungodly, and sinners is the us and the we, those who are totally unworthy of Christ's redemption. A chapter before in Romans 4, verse 5, it says, However, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. God doesn't justify the righteous, for there are none. He doesn't justify the self-righteous. Because indeed they don't have righteousness. He justifies the ungodly, the sinners and his enemies in Christ Jesus. The word enemies there in verse 10 refers to the, the hostile relationship between holy God and sinful man. It's not that we, we, we look out on, on all mankind and go, well, God might be a little bit displeased with them. And they might be just, you know, okay with God. And maybe they can add a little bit of God in and, you know, and give a bit of lip service. No, the Bible's witness is that they're enemies of God. And we talked about this two weeks ago. There's a hostility 
There's enmity. That's talking about hatred. The enemies of God under his wrath. Colossians 1.21. Again, Paul writes, he says, And you, this is speaking to believers, who once were alienated, and the same word, and hostile. That same word there, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Do you get what Paul's doing there? He's laying it on again and again and again so that you don't forget what you once were. That you don't forget that you were sinners and ungodly and at war with God because mankind is at war with God. But what does this war bring? Does it have small consequences? Or does it have pretty big ones? Have a look with me. Verse 9. Verse 9. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? This is the wrath of God, which is in store for every sinner outside of Christ. This was even you before you were saved. What does Ephesians 2 call us? That we were children of God's wrath. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Again, past tense. We were children of wrath. Praise God for past tense. As as Jill read out for us from Isaiah 59, you may have sensed some of these similar themes of of our helplessness and sin and God's wrath in Isaiah 59. And in verse 16, it says this, He saw, this is God, He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. They're helpless. No one to intercede. No one to intervene. No one. What does it say next? Verse 16, So His own arm worked salvation for Him, and His own righteousness... Sustained him. We're helpless without God's intervention. Verse 18. According to what they have done, so he will repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. What's their due? What do they deserve? God's wrath. That's what they deserve. But praise God for verse 20, the last verse of that section says, The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins. God sends a Redeemer. That's the message of what we're learning about today. You're helpless by nature before Christ. You stand condemned because of your sins under God's wrath. You're helpless. There's no one to intervene. And you deserve God's wrath. And yet the only hope is that God will send a redeemer. That's the message of the gospel. Remind yourselves this morning that you are helpless and hopeless without God. How helpless and hopeless you are without God. It's not like as a Christian we're saved and then we're pretty good. And we have enough strength to save ourselves in the end. No. We're still relying on Christ and his righteousness. We're still relying on God's strength. Because we're helpless and hopeless without Christ. You have no hope without Christ. Zilch. Nil. Nothing. At all. 
And children, I want to say a word to children here this morning. If you're a child, listen up. You need to see that you're helpless and hopeless without Christ. You can't save yourself by your own works. Did all you have to offer God is your sin, and that's not a very good thing to offer God. And your only hope is to be found in Christ. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, if you're not trusting in Christ, recognize your state before God, because if you don't, you will see, your, you will see no need for Christ. You'll see no need for Christ. You're a believer, recognizing your utter helplessness before God will always make you marvel at his kindness and his love and his grace and his mercy in Christ. And as soon as you keep as soon as you forget your helplessness, you will treat the death of Christ as something light, as something just of little consequence. Brethren, let us always recognize our helplessness and what we were, so that we will always continue to marvel. Marvel at God's mercy in Christ Jesus. But brethren, if that's all this passage taught, then there's no hope, is there? If we forget about the rest of Scripture, if we just look at the verses that we've just looked at and, and, forget the re- and don't recognize the rest, there's no hope. But brethren, there is hope. Because we're going to see Christ's death, but we're going to see the motive behind Christ's death in verse 7 and verse 8. Have a look with me. Verse 7. Verse 7. We're going to see firstly what the motive is not. Verse 7. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. Stop there. That's not what God's motive is. It's not your own righteousness and it's not goodness that would motivate God to die. Or send his son, I should say, to die for you. Because there is no goodness and no righteousness that God saw in you. And if you're seeing any goodness and righteousness in you of your own making, you're deceiving yourself. You're tricking yourself. That's self-righteousness. Because one of the problems with modern man is that he thinks he's the opposite of how this passage describes him. He thinks he's the opposite of helpless, ungodly, a sinner, and an enemy of God. He thinks he's capable not too bad, really. And that he's okay with God. He thinks he's okay. I mean, everything will be fine, surely. And how could God not approve of what he does? I mean, he, he tries to do some good things now and then. How could God not approve? I mean, God just can just ignore like the, the other stuff. Maybe I'll, you know, we'll forget it and God will forget it too. Nevertheless, Scripture doesn't give you this opinion or this view. He doesn't, God, scripture doesn't, and God doesn't leave you with this illusion. So that's not the motive. Any goodness or righteousness inherent in you. But what is the motive? What is the motive? Have a look in the verse, verse 8. But, so he's contrasting here, but... God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows, 
Notice this in the present tense there. God still shows. And he will forever be showing it, as it were, as we continue to remember the death of Christ. He shows. What does he show? His own love for us. That's what he shows. That's what he demonstrates. Through sending his son. His love. Who would man die for? Maybe for a good person, verse 7. And that's good on our reckoning. No, God loves his sinful people and he sent his son to die for them. That's God's motive in sending his son. It wasn't just wishful thinking that God sent his son. No, it's with a definite plan and purpose before the ages began. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now in this verse there are two reform camps and some include in terms of the world there, every single person, that God has a saving desire as it were, an intention behind the sending of his son. And you can still work to reconcile that with, with the intention behind a definitive group of people that Jesus sends his son for. And yet I'm of the other reform camp, which takes the world there. Yes, it means Jew and Gentile, the world over. But it means his people, specifically Jew and Gentile. Specifically the elect. Because if you see all the other passages that speak of God giving his son or Jesus giving himself up for, you may have finished that sentence, up for us, it always speaks of God giving his son or Christ giving himself for his people, his elect. Because that's what God wants us to, to recognize. It's the us and the we of Romans 5. It's God's love. In sending his own son, there's intention behind it, a motive behind Christ's death, his saving love. God's infinite love for his elect is his motive in giving his only son for his people. Romans 8 verses 38 and 39 says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the love of God. It says, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the love of God that's being spoken of in Romans 5. It's a love that God has for his people in Christ Jesus. God loves his people in Christ. And nothing can separate his people from him in Christ Jesus. But see the love of Christ in those four words in Romans 5 verse 8. Christ died for us. I want these four words to be stamped on your brain and my brain too. Stamp these words on your brain and meditate on them. All the time. Because if those words... Don't make you marvel at God's love for you, if you're a Christian. I think I can declare that's sinful. 
Because in those words, God is declaring his love to you. And how often I see those words and my heart is so cold. And I just brush over it. Yeah, Christ died for me. That's it. Let them be stamped on your brain and meditate on them. Draw out the richness of them. Don't skip over them. And you will see the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. In giving his son for you. Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 5 verse 2, and walk in love, Paul said, and walk in love as Christ loved us, loved us and gave himself up for us. Can you see the love behind the giving? The love of Christ and the love of the Father behind the giving of Christ for his people? Brethren, have you forgotten the love of God in Christ Jesus for you? Have you been doubting it? Because if you have, you need to repent. Because it's here, plain for all to see. Plain for you to see. If you're doubting it, repent. Change your mind in the thinking of the Scriptures. The Scriptures are meant to do that. They're meant to change our thinking. So that we'll see God's love. He gave His only Son for you, brethren. For you. Meditate greatly on the love of God in sending Christ for you. Brethren, what God desires, he carries out. So God does, did and does and forever will love his people. And he sent his son, his only begotten son, to die for them. But if he sent his son to die for his people and it was of no effect, then what's the use? What did it affect? And we're last going to see with the end of Christ's death in verses 9 to 11. The end of Christ's death. Because brethren, if, if we gave ourselves for others, what effect would that have? Maybe a small one. But it wouldn't save from sin. It wouldn't save for eternity. I'm not saying don't give your life for others. But in the scheme of things, God sending his own son, it has to do something. Why? Because God has purposed it. That we have a problem in Christ. Came to fix that problem. Have a look with me, verses 9 to 11. Have a look at verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood. That's the first result of Christ's death, is justification. And this word means to be declared righteous in God's sight. Righteous in God's sight. And this is the need of, of every sinner. He, God pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. Because of, not because of anything worked in us or done by us. But because God imputes or counts the righteousness of his dear son to all who believe in him, in his son. Indeed, this righteousness is Christ's perfect obedience to the law in every single way, culminating in his death. 
And so we see that we're justified. It says we've been justified by his blood. And this word blood is, is, is a metaphor. And you, if you've read the scriptures, you will have seen it all throughout the scriptures. Blood is a metaphor used to, to signify life. The life of the flesh is in the blood, God says in the Old Testament. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And so to shed that blood is to give your life and to die. So when it says we're justified by his blood, that says we're, we're justified by his death. And in the Old Testament, sacrifices, right? Sacrifices had to be given again and again and again. And yet, truly, they could not justify. Truly, they could not forgive sins once and for all. But now there's a forever justification. There's a forever forgiveness, if you like. Through Christ's blood. 1 Peter 1 verses 18 and 19 says that Jesus is the Lamb who is unblemished and spotless. And that we're redeemed by his precious blood. Romans 3.25 says that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. A propitiation just means a, a wrath-bearing sacrifice. It satisfies God's justice. How? By his blood to be received by faith. And so that's the first result of Christ's death, is that we're justified. And this solution, if you like, completely satisfies the need of the, remember those words, ungodly and sinners? God has the perfect solution. He justifies the ungodly and the sinners. But what's the next thing? Reconciliation. Verses 10 and 11. It says it twice. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Verse 11, not only this, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. That word reconciliation means to make enemies and make them friends. Those who were apart and to bring them together, to reconcile, to change the status of something or someone. 2 Corinthians 5 says, In Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And the condition, so just like ungodly and sinners, that solution was God justifying Making his, declaring his people righteous in Christ Jesus. This enemies, this hostility to God, God provides the perfect solution in that he reconciles his enemies. See how the need and the solution, God provides the perfect solution. So those words justified and, and reconciled are in the past tense. As I said before, praise God for past tense, indicating that the church there in Rome, indeed us here this morning who are in Christ, and all believers everywhere, that's past tense. It's not that on the final day we'll hopefully get to heaven and, and we'll have to see if we're going to be justified again. There's no final justification by works. It's not that we're going to get to heaven and hopefully be reconciled to God. Then No, it's now if you trust in Christ Jesus. It's past tense if you're a believer. Your works aren't going to be brought out and God goes, well, I'll see if you get into heaven. No, you have eternal life now. Works on the final day are merely for God to 
to reward his people. The works that God works in his people. So brethren, have a look at verse 11. How do we take this? Verse 11. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. Brethren, do you rejoice in your reconciliation? You should. I should. A lot more. Brethren, rejoice. As Paul said in the book of Philippians, remember as Joel was preaching for us through it, again and again we heard, rejoice in the Lord. Again I say rejoice. One Peter talks about a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Brethren, rejoice in your reconciliation. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice in your salvation. Go out of here rejoicing. Wake up in the morning rejoicing. As your head hits the pillow, be rejoicing. How often we forget to rejoice in the salvation worked by our great and loving God in Christ Jesus. But we also have an end of Christ's death is final salvation. Final salvation. Have a look in the verses 9 and 10. <clears throat> Paul's got an argument here that he uses to bring hope to his people. Verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? In here, Paul uses an argument from the greater to the lesser. An argument from the past tense to the future, uh, the past slash present to the future. I want you to understand this because sometimes when you read it, it's a bit hard to work out. What Paul's getting at here is if that you have been justified, if you have been reconciled, God's not going to go back on what he's already done. That's the summary of what Paul's getting at here. If he's already done stuff for you, he's not going to turn around and say, you know what, I take it all back. Or it's not like you can, you can somehow lose it and God says, oops. No, not at all. If God justifies and reconciles, now let me, instead of saying if, since God justifies and reconciles those who are his enemies, now that they are his friends and they're righteous in Christ Jesus in his sight, it would be impossible for God to go back on his word and to not save them from his wrath on the final day. In verse 9 and 10, that word save there is in the future tense. And it's passive as well. It's not active that we save, but it's in the future tense. Now, in the Bible, in the New Testament particularly, there are three tenses of salvation. And you're probably going to come away with a lot about with me talking about tenses this morning. But it's really important to understand. And even as you're reading the scriptures, tense is important. It can often be the difference between heresy and not, or false to in error or not. Saved can be we were saved, right, as Christians. We were saved. Let's talk about justification, right? reconciliation, right? That's what we've had here. The scriptures also talk about that we are being saved, right? There's a sanctifying process that the Holy Spirit does as we use the means of grace. But then there's a 
we will be saved in the future, right? When we're glorified. And it's important to understand that works don't play any part in the first one, in our justification and reconciliation. In the middle one, as we're being saved, works are, are, are being done by us and worked in us by the Spirit. Not that they contribute anything to our salvation, but God brings us all the way till we are saved on the final day. Till we're saved on the final day. And that's the salvation being talked about in verses 9 and 10. Because the future salvation is rooted in the present slash past justification and reconciliation that God has provided in His Son. Verse 10. How does this happen? Verse 10. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? What does it mean that we save through his life? Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Because Jesus lives forever, he saves his people forever. Because Jesus lives forever, he saves his people forever. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 and 10 says, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So not only did Jesus die to justify and reconcile his people, but he was raised from the dead and he lives forevermore to ensure that that salvation is a forever salvation. Because if God has justified you, brethren, and he has reconciled himself to you in Christ Jesus, you will never lose your salvation because he's promised it and because Christ lives forever. Christ lives forever. Brethren, what a hope. Rest your hope, not in yourself. Rest your hope, yes, in the death of, of Christ. And rest your hope in the life of Christ as he lives forevermore, raised from the dead and ascended on high. Brethren, you have a, a perfect Savior who's fulfilled every need of yours. Your ungodliness and your sin and your helplessness. And he saved you, not only, not only now, but for all of eternity. And he lives forever. What a hope, brethren. We have a, a perfect saviour. God doesn't serve up a half salvation. He doesn't serve up a, serve up a half-baked plan of salvation. It's full. It does the whole deal. Rest your hope in it. Rest your hope in it. And if you're here this morning, if you think that you can in any way get to heaven, outside of Christ, you're kidding yourself. The death of Christ and the life of Christ are of no avail to you. You must turn. You must, you must place your trust in Christ Jesus. You must realize that your only hope is in Him. You must rest in Him. 
You must believe in him and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Don't trust in your works. Don't rest in your sin and be satisfied in your sin. And come to Christ. Believe in Christ and he will reconcile you. He will justify you. He will, he will, he will make you righteous in God's sight. And he will save you forever. Forever. Let's come before our God in prayer. Let's pray. Oh God. We thank you for your love in sending your own dear son. What love is this? Oh God, we're so unworthy. We're so helpless and weak and sinful by nature. And yet we thank you, Lord, that this was the right time. The perfect time for Lord. There was going to be no other time. Oh Lord, we thank you so much for sending your dear son to die for us. And we thank you, precious God, that he lives forevermore, that you raised him up, that he lives victorious so that he will save all those who come to him by faith. Oh, thank you, precious God, for the full, free and perfect salvation given in your son. It is free for us and yet it cost you, it cost your son. Oh, precious Lord, we pray for those here who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, who have not yet trusted in him, we pray, Lord, make them to see, make them to see the depths of their sin and their helplessness and cause them to see the perfection of Christ and his perfect righteousness freely given to all who believe in him. Lord, please, this morning, help them to see this, Lord, and save them by your grace. Oh Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.